Good morning. All right. We've been at a prophecy conference, obviously, for the last couple of days, and we're finishing up today, the third day. And uh, if you really stop to consider that, that we would discuss the matter of prophecy, then that means that God is still communicating. He is still making sure that we understand the things that are still future to our time. And so even though he has written as he has written, there is so much that is covered in Scripture, as, as David had gone over this, this last session, so much of what he was covering, though it gives us peace in the here and now, those are future things. And so God has told us those things in advance, and then tells us to be aware of the, the times around us, and to use it as a way of, of comforting one another, but also as a means by which we can reach out to a lost world. The idea that God still speaks and that, that he's one who has said the things that he has said, but it gives us confidence in the here and now. And so I get to uh, share with you this morning out of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, but we'll look at, a, uh, at some examples of how God had communicated and the consistency of that. But before we do that, I would like to, uh, to go with you to one other place. So if, you're, if you've already turned to Hebrews, just keep your finger there. And I would like to have you turn to the book of Acts chapter 5. Because whenever I am in a gathering of people, I am also uh, mindful that I am in a gathering of, uh, of the church. And I want to look at something that was said by a person who was kind of a critic, but seemingly pragmatic in his assessment of what was happening in that early church. So uh, we'll start there just to point out something that should be obvious to all the rest of us, but sometimes we forget. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you as we can come to you this, in this place today, and uh, we can seek you out. You've given us your word, and you've also given us the promise that your Holy Spirit would lead us in all truth. And so as we gather here today, and as we come to your word, we pray that you would uh, encourage us and build us up. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to go out of this place ready to take on the world that lays before us and not be afraid of it, but to recognize that we have the only solution to man's problems, and that is uh, your word and, and what it, it tells us, how we can be reconciled. You have spoken through the generations you speak today. And we would ask, Lord, that you would uh, give us an understanding of how to convey that truth to this world. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 5, um, I know that this may be this is very profound. It follows chapter 4. And so um, <laughs> by this time, the church is beginning to understand what persecution looks like. And it, it started with just threats, and it, it escalated from there. Now, at one point, you'll notice that, that uh, Peter ends up saying in chapter 5 at verse 28, uh, or I'm sorry, it's not Peter, but they're saying to them, they're, they're threatening them, verse 28 of chapter 5, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name. What name is that? In the name of Jesus. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so, newsflash, Pharisees and Sadducees and Sanhedrin, you're the, his blood is on your hands. It's not that we're going to do any such thing. It's already there. But notice what Peter says. And Peter uh, and then the other apostles, they answered and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and to be savior and to give repentance to Israel, the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And once again, these are men who are, are passing along what God had already told them. You get the, the crux of his argument here about that you killed him, God raised him from the dead. There is forgiveness and repentance. Jesus told them that that would be their message in Luke 24 at the closing verses of that. But notice what happens here. And why do I bring this up? It's because I'm looking at you people here. And what you're going to look at in this is you could say, us sitting here in 2017 is evidence that uh, the, the wager, if you will, of Gamaliel has come to pass, and we have the evidence, and you're right here. Look at this, verse 33. So when these people heard it, when the, the adversaries of Jesus, when they heard these things, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. Nothing new, right? They wanted to kill Jesus. 
course, they wanted to kill them as well. So then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to be put outside for a little while. And so he said, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and they came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And have you ever thought to yourself, well, I wonder what we know about this Thaddeus and what we know about this this, uh, Judas? We know nothing about them. Why? Because aside from this footnote in history, we know nothing of them because they came to nothing. And so Gamaliel finishes by saying this, and now I say to you, keep away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan is the work of men, then it'll come to nothing. But if it is the word of, or work of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Do you realize that when we assemble, we are making good on the, uh, on the uh, answer to that question? If Jesus was just like Thaddeus, or if he was just like Judas, we would not be here. So, church, I think we have the answer to his question. How fun is that? And so now we talk about the God who speaks. When you look in the book of Hebrews in the first three verses, you read this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, we are often... Uh, told by our critics that we are a New Testament uh, believing church. And so what do you do with that God of the Old Testament with all of the violence and all the rest of it? And of course, we understand that that is a, a question best answered by context. What was the reason for the violence? And God was not indiscriminately, indiscriminately calling his people to violence or we would still be in that place. You go back and look at the reasons why there was the time of of violence and and killing and all the rest. We're talking about being on war footing at the time. So a a simple looking through the text would help you to understand that. God is not into violence for violence's sake. For the preservation of his people, he would call them to war. That's a very simple one to deal with. What I really would like to focus in on is the transition between the old and the new when it comes to the matter of messaging. So before we get to this, remember by the time that we are reading Hebrews or we're reading the Gospels or really any of the New Testament writings, all of them were written after Jesus' betrayal, his, his mock trial, his being put to death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit. All of those things had already changed and, and come to pass. So the church's message was entirely new. It was entirely different. And of late, I've used this example that sometimes misses our, our, our view. Think about the people that followed him around Galilee and Jerusalem for those three years, the apostles that he had called to himself, and, and just think about what it was like in their message before and after the resurrection. I think it's a very important thing for us to consider. It's why you see such a different uh, message coming out of the New Testament, because there was a new message to be given. To that point, even during Jesus' time, if somebody was to come up and survey the apostles and say, we're really intrigued by what your master, by what your rabbi is teaching, can you tell us a little bit about him? And so they would have said, well, we've, we've seen him. He has mastery over the, the elements and the wind obeys him and the storms. We've seen him calm storms. We've seen him heal at will. We've even seen him raise the dead and, and the message that he has is, is not one to try to undo what has been, but he's the fulfillment of it. That's what he's told us. And the things that we see him do just really seems to give credence to that. But imagine their message after the resurrection, how different that would be. Can you tell us a little bit about this Jesus that you're referring to? 
They could say, well, you know, when we were up in Galilee, the the wind and the the storms, he was able to calm them. They obeyed him. And, yeah, we saw him heal at will, and we would see him raise the dead. And his message was unlike anything that we've ever seen. But then he said he was going to go to Jerusalem and be put to death. And then on the third day, God was going to raise him from the dead. And he did so that we could be reconciled to God through his blood if we would repent and come to him and seek him for forgiveness. And we saw him after he resurrected, so we know it's all true. Think of the difference in that message. Because you can begin to teach repentance and recognize that, that God is telling you everything that he was going to do and that he made good on that. And so that helps us to understand how the messaging of the church would be completely different from that of the Old Testament. Now, here is something that is also unique and important for us to recognize because oftentimes we will have people... That, that when they find out what it is that we believe, they'll say, well, that's great. You know, we, we believe that all roads lead to God. And, and they try to put us in the category of all the rest of the religions and put us on equal footing. Well, I reject that because the God of the Old and the New Testament was one who spoke directly to his creation. In fact, you will notice something very unique about the God of the Bible in that he says he loves his creation. He loves mankind. Now, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing entirely to give a demonstration of it, and Paul covers that in Romans 5.8, where he says that God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, he died for the ungodly. So it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to back it up. What I find fascinating is the way that he had spoken in times past, and there is something that's very interesting in the implication of this. Let's look at the first part of this uh, to begin with. Verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers. So to the ones to whom he was going to communicate, the the patriarchs and the ones who would follow after them, he was in direct communication with those people. Did it through a variety of ways, sometimes with angels, sometimes directly to people, sometimes it would be through prophets and other times through kings and a variety of different ways where God would be able to communicate. So he did that in, in various ways. I want to look at, in, in doing that, a lot of times it would be instruction. Here's what I need you to do and, and all the rest. But I want to actually also look at how he refers to himself or how he explains who he is. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 34. And we're going to begin at verse 5. Now, if you're the type that likes to witness and you talk with people, I'm sure that some of us in here have had where people are not necessarily adversaries to us. They're not looking to necessarily argue, but they hear a lot about, well, there's that God in the Old Testament who's who's angry and it's, you know, that, that caricature of God's, you know, sitting on a, on a cloud somewhere with a lightning bolt in his hand waiting for somebody to do something really awful that he can strike them dead, right? That's the view that people have of God. And yet, can we let him speak for himself? If he's the God who has spoken in times past, how about we take his own words? Because he tells us in verse 5 of Exodus 34, Now the Lord descended in a cloud and and, uh, stood with him there. The him, of course, being Moses. So he uh, proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those are the things that people don't, that are, that don't want to believe what we believe. They pass right over those things. They don't recognize him in this way. But that's the God that we know from the Christian perspective. And that's the same God who sent his son to reconcile us that we could know him this way. People love to focus on the second part of this. Look at what it says. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Basically, there is consequence, folks. The things that we will do will will affect, in the collateral sense, the generations that follow after us. And do we need evidence of this? Well, sure. We have it right here in the text. Look at the generations that followed after Abraham. If you look through, we're studying it back home. You go through Genesis and you would say, if you're going to look at 
stellar examples of followers of God, you're not going to point out the sons of Jacob necessarily. There was a lot of mistakes made in those guys. There was a lot of, of carnality and sensual things that took place. I mean, it's, it's pretty sordid when you get through parts of that. And yet you realize that, that God didn't do these things through them because they were perfect, but God did these things through them because God was going to do those things through them. And he was going to make good on a promise that he made to their father Abraham that through you the nations would be blessed because Messiah was going to come through that line. So when we read this and God is able to explain to us his characteristic, we need to recognize that there is the mercy of God, but there is the justice of God as well. Prophecy explains that to us. We've been focusing in on it so much. Each of the speakers over the last couple of days have had various ways of looking at the times in which we live and pointing out the obvious conclusion that the days are wrapping up around us. The signs are, are all around us. And again, I appreciate what, what uh, David had said. It's not about setting dates. And unfortunately, when people do that, every time that that date comes and goes, we look foolish. Even those of us who said, please don't attach my name to that. We don't know the day nor the hour because we're not looking at the rapture as a day. We're looking at it as an event that will happen eventually. So when it happens is up to him. He's told me to be busy about his work until he returns. So until such time, I don't care when it takes place. If you ask me if I have my choice, I'd like to have it happen today. I'd like to have, have it happen before I have to get on a plane. I hate being on planes because I'm afraid. No, it's because I just get bored. I want to be off the thing. But when it takes place is when it will take place. I'm not anxious for such things because I have watched so many people get excited about a day or an event that they think is going to be it. And then it comes to my mind what the Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart weary. I've seen so many people wearied about they think that Jesus is coming back and he doesn't and they become so discouraged. But our hopefulness is in what will come. But let's remember that if he's left us here, there's a reason why he's left us here. It is to make sure that we proclaim the good news of Jesus because there are people that are not believers and he's chosen to use us and all of our imperfection to go out and take a perfect message through imperfect people to a world that needs to hear it. So let's not become discouraged. When we hear people talk about that God of the Old Testament, oh, this one here who says that he's merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, yeah, that's the God I know. Well, what about all the killing? What about all the rest of that? Well, read it in context and you'll understand why. Why would he tell God to put down entire groups of people? Because they're already in a place of opposition to God and they're going to die in their sin. Better that it's just them than they take you with them. So have nothing to do with those people. Break their altars and get rid of their idols because they're already given to those things. They are on their way to destruction. Don't follow after them. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means, though, clearing the guilty. He doesn't become indifferent to sin. This is an important matter because if he could, if he could claim indifference then Jesus did not have to come and do what he did, right? Let me point out another one, if I could. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. Let's turn to chapter 7. And again, it deals with that matter of God's love. We talk about it as Christians all the time, and we should. We also want to be able to explain it as much as, as is humanly possible. And so much gets dismissed because of the love of God, that we leave out the rest of it, that, yeah, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And he's just dealt with that in the Exodus passage. That doesn't mean that it's contradictory. That just means that he has that nature, that his desire is mercy. But for those who do not desire mercy and graciousness and all the rest, well, they've chosen. That is what they have decided upon. And God is not, as we were talking yesterday, a couple of friends of mine, God will never take the person who rejects him and grab them kicking and screaming and make them go to heaven. If you don't want anything to do with him, he won't make you. We'll read something about that here in just a little bit. But here's one of those things I absolutely love. Now, uh, I know that Dwight and uh, a bunch from here are going to Israel next, next month. We plan on going in the springtime. It is one of my, my absolute pleasures as a pastor to take people to the Holy Land. 
I love taking people there because I love to watch, especially the first time people, the wonderment in their eyes that they're actually looking at the places. They're actually able to see the locations and the history of it all comes alive. I always tell people, you will read the Bible visually from now on if you go see it with your own eyes. And then I love to watch the people go back there for the second time. Even though you may see the same places, you go, I didn't notice that the first time. And you tell them, that's because you had a camera stuck in your eye. You shouldn't have done that. Now you can pay attention, you can see it, and then it becomes alive. And you will always remember when you're reading about Jesus at Capernaum or somewhere on the Sea of Galilee, and you would ask that person, what was it like? I don't know, you want to know about it from the West Coast, the East Coast, the North, the South? Ask me, I'll tell you all about it. You become ambassadors for an incredible land, and it's founded upon the the promise that God had given to this small group of people in this tiny little sliver of land that the world is all messed up about. To this day, it is amazing. Amazing. Look at this. Look at what God says in Deuteronomy when he speaks about the people. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And some people point to this and say, see right there, it tells you that God chose them. Well, we know that those chosen people, not all of them, came to believe in the God of the Bible. Many rejected him altogether. So this wasn't a choosing unto salvation. This was a choosing as to message a people that would be known by his name. And yes, many would rebel. Many others would follow after him and do what they were asked to do. And there would be that fellowship that he would have with them. But he says, I've chosen you. To be a special treasure above all the peoples upon the face of the earth. And of course, if he doesn't explain the rest, you might say, well, why them and why not someone else? What was it so special about them? And he answers that exact question. The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than the other peoples. You were the least of all of the peoples. And I think you have some element of of understanding why that is. If he chose the biggest and the baddest and the greatest then the biggest and the baddest and the greatest might want to take credit for things. Instead, he he uses the most unlikely of the people, such a small number in, in relation to all of the rest. But here's what's hugely important. Please pay attention to this. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and he has redeemed you from the house of bondage From the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So remember, we're already looking at the history. We are looking at Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the sons who had gone to Egypt. And everything was good at the time that they went there. We know the history. We've all watched the Ten Commandments, right? So we know when Charlton Heston went before, you know, okay, um, we don't need to do all that, do we? We've seen the movie. Better yet, we have the text. We know how this all worked out. There was the time when God sent them a deliverer and that deliverer has now taken them from the place of their captivity and bondage and is moving them back to the land that was promised to them. See, God had spoken and he had made a promise. This is a land and this is a land that I have given to you forever. And it said repeatedly that God gave it to them as an eternal inheritance, the land, there is an attachment that's there. So for the replacement theology people, look, you can believe that nonsense all that you want to. You argue against the word of God. Good luck with that. So when I look at this, I think he didn't do this because they were perfect, not by a long shot. If God was only looking for perfect people, no one would get out alive. It would never work. So he tells them that I'm the one who brought you out. Well, see, If you remember all the way back when he was speaking to Abraham, he told them there would be a time when the people would become captive. He was telling them again, because God spoke in times past to the fathers in various ways. Because he was always telling them the same thing. You would be in bondage for a time, but I would release you from that bondage or that captivity. Isn't it wonderful how the Bible speaks of bondage as sin, especially in the New Testament sense? And who's the one who led us out of the bondage to sin? Jesus, the promised Messiah. All the way back to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And through you, the generations of man, the nations would be blessed. How else could that happen other than Messiah? It's the only possible way. So God was telling that story all along. 
Letting people know that he's loving and compassionate and that he loves his creation and he is directly involved and in direct communication with them. Also making them aware that he is holy and perfect and that he requires holiness and perfection of his people. He said, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. No qualifiers, no caveats, no grading on the curve. Be holy as I am holy. So how many of us would say, I am doing great with that today? Anyone? Instead, you feel like, man, every time I read that, my palms sweat, and I think something really bad is about to happen to me. See, Paul would tell us in Galatians that the law that that showed us what perfection looked like, not just did God say, I want you to be holy and perfect, But now let me put it in writing what holiness and perfection looks like. And there you have it. Paul would say that's a frustration to us. David said the law of the Lord is wonderful and it it, uh, converts the soul. When I read the law and try to do it in my own flesh, I'm, I'm not feeling so good about it. I feel condemned because I can't measure up to that. Paul says that the law was given to us as a tutor schoolmaster that would bring us to the person of Jesus where we would cry out and say, I can't keep this. And he would say, I know. (laughs) That's why I'm here. I can keep that. I can meet all of the requirements that the law demanded of you and I can take it upon myself. And then you can come to me. So let's go back to Hebrews because this is where the transition is. He had a variety of ways of communicating to people in times past. The transition at verse 2 is hugely important to us because notice what it says. Has in these last days spoken to us. He spoke to them in, in other ways. Now he is speaking to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Paul would say that we are also joint heirs with him. Now I know that that's in the text but I still have trouble wrapping my mind around this. So then notice what else he says. He has appointed him the heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. Now, I grew up as a Catholic, and I just heard that God created the world. Okay, great. So the, the one with the gray hair and the beard, on the, on the cloud with the lightning bolt, he just made stuff. That was my concept. And then God led me to Calvary Chapel, and I thought, oh, this is what the Protestants do come to find out, no, the Protestants don't do this very much. That's like looking at the Word of God and teaching it and learning from it. No, this was a weird thing that the Calvary chapels were doing and still do, praise God. We take the look at the Scripture and say it begins at Genesis and it ends at Revelation. And God did not write it to try to win an argument. He just told you what he did. So if the scholars want to argue with God, again, I don't have time to listen to the argument. You're fools. But enjoy yourselves. We'll be over here believing the God, that the God gave us his word and meant it when he said it. So be like the dogs chasing your tails. Never works out well. Notice what he said, though. In these last days, he has spoken directly to us. How do we know? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten. I hope we understand this. Step back from it for a moment and say... In times past, God spoke through angels, kings, prophets, sometimes, you know, through a burning bush and some other ways. He had ways of communication, but there's this to this to this. God, mediator, man. In Jesus, we have God came here in person. Now we could put a face to the voice. Now we know what he looks like. And he had a whole different message because now the kingdom of God was at hand. He wasn't going to change things on earth, not yet. But he was going to make the way possible where we could be reunited with the Father. We would have access once again. It's been lost since Eden and sin entered in. Now in Jesus, when he ascends and sends to us the Holy Spirit, things are back in their normal order. Perfected when we leave this body and see him face to face. So it tells us, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. And again, as a Catholic, I didn't realize Jesus had anything to do with it. John makes it even more plain than that. 
in verse 3 of the first chapter of John, where it just says, And all things were created by him, and without him nothing was created that was created. That was revolutionary to me. I couldn't believe Jesus was the one who... Really? Yes, really. How do you know that? Because the Bible said so, and I've been listening to dummies. Or just making the own assumption. Let me not make anybody guilty, because nobody in the church I was in talked about such things. I just assumed... God made everything. I didn't even know that Jesus was God. I thought that he started living a couple thousand years ago. Thank God for his word because he's communicated. He speaks directly to his creation and tells them everything that they need to know. He's left nothing out that is of any importance. Read the other writings of all of the other religions. You ask most people, what are the monotheisms of the world? They'll say Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The rest of them are not monotheisms. Ask the Muslim. They'll say we're idolaters. We're pagans because we believe in three gods. They would only say the Jews and and the Muslims. And they'll tell you that all of the Jews of their history were actually Muslims anyway. Of course, I always have fun with that because I say, you know, Noah had pigs on the ark, right? But we won't talk about that. (laughs) That's just, you know, I always found that to be kind of interesting. And dogs as well. But, and women. So... Go figure. So when you take all of that into account and you recognize that if there are three monotheisms, there is Christianity, Judaism, Islam, only the God of the Bible, the Judeo-Christian God says, I know you, I love you, I have sacrificed for you because I want to redeem you. You won't even find, seriously, go look through a Quran. Or just take my word for it because there's no sense in reading it. Nowhere in there does it says that Allah loves his creation. In fact, his creation doesn't even know where they stand with him at any particular time. As far as the God of Scripture is concerned, because he has sent his son to speak to us in these last days and we can know him, there is not a single person who has ever been able to pick up a Bible and not know where they stand with God. They know whether they're right or wrong if they'll take the time. Again, a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. One of the things that people say to us all the time is, well, how can you believe Christianity? Look at how many denominations you people have. You guys can't agree on anything. And what I would tell you is if a person picked up the Bible for the first time and knew nothing of denominations, they wouldn't even know that they existed. They would just know what God says. It's one of the beauties, again. With Calvary chapels, I could speak for Dwight, for myself, for Charlie, the other Calvary pastors. We freely associate with them or we can freely disassociate. It doesn't matter. We believe what we believe based upon the word of God. And a church can be independent of all of the denominations. And we say we just stand upon the word of God and nobody makes up our mind for us. I love it. I love it. Nobody can come in here from any organization and tell Dwight you got to leave. Because Dwight can say, I can call 911 and we'll see who's leaving. Right? But of course, he's such a gentle natured guy, nothing like that would ever happen. But. <laughs> Verse 3 is a continuation because he's talking more about the nature of the Son. We know about the nature of God. He's long suffering and merciful, and he, he doesn't excuse sin and, and the, the fallout of it and the collateral damages that is going to go on for generations. We know that. Exodus lays that out for us. But when we start to look at Jesus, we recognize that for all of what people may think that they know of God, we have in Jesus the exact representation of the Father. Remember, it's it's in uh, John 14, 6, where Jesus says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. What was Philip's whole thing? Wait a minute, what? He doesn't understand. And he says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know these things? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's been telling them consistently, don't think that the words that I'm saying to you are my own. I'm here saying what my father has sent me to say to you. And he backs up my words by the signs and the wonders that you see so that you can know that I am who I say that I am. Amazing stuff. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 3, speaking of this Jesus, he is the brightness of his glory. He's the outshining of the glory of the father. And he is the express image of his person. I heard one person uh, explain it this way. For those of you who know what a typewriter looks like, right? You can see him in the Smithsonian. But at, at one point, <laughs> you would hit the key, and a little key stroke would come up and hit the paper. But it would leave the impression every time, whatever it was. 
the express image. You want to know what the father looks like? Look at the image of his son. He's left a mark, if you will. You'll know what he looks like because he's going to demonstrate his nature. Jesus never excused sin, but he was gracious and merciful and loving and all the rest of it. And I've always been blown away by that because I'm of the opinion that as much as they may have been a frustration to Jesus because of the silly things that that they did, I think he loved the personal contact with his creation. Remember, everything that his now human eyes could see, he created. The very fact that they drew breath was because of his creative work. And now here he is dwelling among them, and he knew he was going to give his life because he loved them. So can you imagine, I mean, might look in their eyes and say, you guys frustrate me so much, but I really love you. He's the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Everybody that I know that's been involved with the conference these last few days, you, walk, you see him walking around here, and if you ever wonder why zombies are so miserable in the movies, now you know. They're sleep-deprived, nothing more than that. So the poor people that put on this conference, I mean, it takes a lot to do these kind of things, and there's a real exhaustion that goes. And so it doesn't matter how tired you are, your head hits the pillow, the next day you're going to start all over again because you left things undone. I hope we get the picture here. Jesus purged our sin. Is there anything left to do? Nope. Not until he comes back for us. He was able to sit down because there's nothing left to do. In the meantime, he will still pray for us. He will still be our intercessor. He will still love us as much as when he walked among us. But he has nothing left to do. He has finished redemption. Now all we have to wait for is when we see him face to face. I was talking with David uh, before I came up here, and, and I told him, a little bit about myself. I, I am not an emotional person at all. Uh, at times past when we've had people in our family have passed and everybody has their formal mourning and they will weep and they will cry and all that stuff. I, I don't do that. I don't know why that is. And my family thought that I was really weird until a lot more of the family began to pass. And I would always have the same kind of reaction. Just not an emotional person when it comes to that stuff. This stuff reduces me to a puddle of mush. Because I am overwhelmed. I am flooded by the love of God when I read these things. I can't keep it together because I don't know what that love looks like for me to express it. I mean, I love my family. I love the church. I love the people. And I enjoy interacting with all of you. Those of, the, those of you that I get a chance to. I mean, it's genuine. I really love interacting with you. But that kind of love, like the old pinball machines, man. Tilt just happened and nothing works got to wait till it resets and start again because I just can't fully grasp this though I have seen the demonstration of it and though I have been given his Holy Spirit as proof that I have been born again because of his love for me to try to really wrap my mind around it I can't emotion is what takes over because I want to see his face those things will actually bring about and evoke in me Emotion. I'm sure that there are many of you just like me. Isn't that an amazing thing? The effect that the love of God has upon a person. If we're wondering what it is that we should be able to talk to people about and try to express to them why we believe what we believe, love is a wonderful thing to talk about. And we are able to bridge the gap by looking at the passage that we did in Deuteronomy 7, where God says, I chose you because I love you. And we can tie it right into the Romans 5, 8 or dozens of other passages that say the exact same thing because God cannot get away from the subject. But we have the demonstration in the person of Jesus. Here's something else that I would like to make sure that we understand. The book of John, when it comes to this matter of love, and if we want to take it from the passages that we are familiar with, John chapter 3. This is the verse that everybody can recite, but we're going to do a little bit right before it. Verses 15 and 16 have a common phrase in it, but there's one addition in verse 16 
that is a repeat. There's part of it that's a repeat of verse 15, and then verse 16 adds a little bit more information. Now, so that we understand the consistency of how God would demonstrate his love, we have the whole story of when the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Remember, they had sinned, they had griped and started to complain about things, and God sent the snakes in, and we know that whole story, right? And so put up a, a serpent on a pole, and if the people will believe them, they will, they'll survive the sting of the serpents. The gospel is in this. It's the craziest story. We could do without knowing anything of it. If that was omitted from the history of Israel, it would be fine. There were plenty of other times when they disobeyed and God had to judge them. Why do we have that detail? Because Jesus was going to refer to it when he was talking with the disciples and John was going to record it for us. I'm convinced of that. That's why we know that bit of history because Jesus says in verse 14, it is right before the one that we all know. We can all recite John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever will believe will not perish but have eternal life. We all know that. Ask people, what does verse 14 tell you? Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. goes along with John 12, where Jesus says, When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Talking about the crucifixion, when people see him and the judgment that came there. But then he explains why that was going to be. Why, Jesus, would you be lifted up? Well, right here, that whosoever believes. Verse 15. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16 helps us to understand what was the motivation to that. Okay, I understand the mechanics. He's going to be lifted up and that he could draw people to himself and that that salvation comes through that. But what was the motivation behind it? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That we know. Of course, we have our critics who would say, well, why would a God of love send people to hell? We get that all the time, right? Jesus answers that in the next couple of verses. Verse 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, through him the world might be saved. The world thinks, why would a God of love send people to hell? Again, talking with friends, I guess if we wanted to put it into an understanding based on what we get from the next verse, let's just go ahead and read it. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who believes in Jesus, not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So for those people to say, why would God send someone to hell? He's not sending anyone. They're already on the destination. They're on that path. They're on the way there. I want us to realize that what we see in this, if we try to put it into some kind of a visual thing, it's great because I have this little center aisle right here. If that's the way to hell and I'm on my way there, I'm going to have to walk past Jesus to get there. Standing right there. And it would be him saying, you're going to go that way. I'm not going to prevent you, but you're going to have to walk right past me to get there. I'm mind blown when I consider that. But that's what it tells me right here. Well, why would God send anyone to hell? That was not his intention. If you're going to willfully go there, he won't prevent you from doing it, but he's going to stand in the way so that you know that you're walking past the one thing that would prevent it. So what has he communicated? He had a way of talking in times past to the fathers, but in these days, he has communicated directly, cut out all the mediation, and now he has been here to deliver the message in person. So church, what are we to take away from this? I want to share with you a couple of closing thoughts. When I was up in Manitowoc a couple of days ago, I got a chance to share a little bit out of the book of Zephaniah, and I want to look at that very, very quickly, because what was happening with them is happening with us in the church today. We're going to go to Zephaniah at chapter 1. Very quickly, because I'm running out of time, the church, or not the church, but the, the people here in history are awaiting the Babylonian captivity. And you can see why there are a number of reasons. But the, the easiest way of understanding it is they had become disobedient to God in such a number of ways. They had provoked him to wrath and he was going to be judging them. Their first offense was that they quit paying attention to the word of God. And so by doing that, they would fall into idolatry. They would quit giving the land rest. There are a number of things that God says. These are the reasons why you're being judged and even the length of time is told to them. It's in the closing verses of Second Chronicles. You can see it in the last few verses of the last chapter. 
in Second Chronicles, he tells you why 70 years. But he explains it's because they had become disobedient even to the point where they wouldn't give the land rest. Well, at this place, notice what he says in verse 12, chapter 1. It will come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish men who are settled in their complacency. Those who say in their heart that the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. We call that apathy. We call that indifference. But not only are they apathetic and indifferent, they are saying that God is just like them. He doesn't care. God's a God of love. It'll all work out. How often do we hear that nonsense in the church? God tells you he's merciful and gracious, and he also tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he does not change. So the God of the Old Testament is very much the God of the New. The message has changed because now redemption has come and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Redeemer, has come and and done the things that he has done, and he has made good on the promise. But let's not kid ourselves to think that there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New. That's deception. Oftentimes I hear people say we, we shouldn't be spending much time in the Old Testament. And ultimately when you look at it, look at a verse like verse 12, what we saw here. Those who are settled in complacency saying in their heart that the Lord will do no good and the Lord will do no evil. Let's end with this, Revelation chapter 3. And those of you Bible scholars would know that chapter 3 is right there where Jesus is talking to the churches. <clears throat> By chapter 3, when you get to verse 14, he's in the last of his seven churches and he's talking to Laodicea. People would say, most, if you survey most people and say, what do you know about the church of Laodicea? The first thing they'll say, oh, that's the church that's in apostasy. It's the end times church. We're going to read the entire address to Laodicea because it's very brief. You'll notice that there is no apostasy in this. He points out nothing that they are doing that would be false doctrine or damnable things. Their offense was complacency and apathy. God spoke in times past. Zephaniah was one who spoke. One of the things that Zephaniah pointed out to the people in Judah, you are apathetic and you are indifferent and you think that God is apathetic and indifferent just like you. You are mistaken. Judgment is coming. He is saying these things in the latter part of his ministry, which overlaps with the earlier part of Jeremiah's history. Jeremiah was going to continue doing that same thing for the next 20 years, roughly, saying the exact same thing. And they were going to be just as complacent and just as apathetic. And it wasn't because there was a problem with the message. It was a problem with the people hearing the message. Not much has changed. I think what you'll find as you survey through the Old Testament, the one thing that you can know for sure is that man is still just as messed up as he's ever been. And we have less excuse to be that. We have a whole lot more information. They knew that there would be someone coming that they would know as Messiah, but they couldn't have put a face with the name. We can. His picture's all over the bookstores, right? Artist's rendition. We know about him characteristically, and that's all that matters. So we don't have a way to be like them and say, well, we're ignorant of some things. That is the last thing anybody in this time could ever plead is ignorance of God's will. But apathy is gripping the church. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, in each one of the churches he gives bits of his qualifications. Who are you to judge us? Well, I'm the one who created everything. I'm faithful and just and true. Jesus gives his qualifications because he's about to say some things to them that will leave them in a place where they're indefensible, especially in the face of the one who can rightly judge them. Verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor, uh, or you are neither hot I could wish that you were cold or hot. So you're neither of those things. You're neither hot nor you're cold. Now, on a hot day, we get a lot more of them back home than you guys do. But on those really, really hot days, the last thing you want to do is go in the house and grab a a cup of, of room temperature water. It's horrible. It's horrible. You want to reach for something that's a little bit colder. It will never quench your thirst. It's nauseating. That's what he says. 
I can deal with hot, I can deal with cold, but the lukewarm stuff, I spit it out of my mouth because it's nauseating to me. If you've ever witnessed to people, and you've, you've gone to the people that are really fallen in their sin, they're really horribly backslidden, they know that what they're doing is an offense to God, and you tell them, man, your life's a mess, you need to, you need to get right with God and repent, you don't need to convince them, right? Because as soon as you say it, their head goes down. I know. A person that's cold knows it. The person that's hot, if you go to them and say, man, you're on fire for the Lord. It's like, yeah, I know, isn't it great? You don't need to convince them. Convince the person that thinks that they got it all together when they're as big a mess as the cold person. Leave me alone. Don't judge me, man. Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. Leave me alone. Those people are impossible to get through because they're so apathetic. They are so indifferent to their their desperate, desperate situation. Look what Jesus says. Well, it's because you say that I am rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And Jesus, in his assessment, says, Do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? They say, We got it all. Jesus says, You've got nothing. So he says, So here's my counsel to you. Buy from me gold that is refined in fire. Don't trust in your own gold, because it's unrefined. You're trusting in the things that you have. Gold that is refined in fire, that you may be rich. White garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with your eye salve, that you may see. For as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. How important is this? Why do we do prophecy conferences? Why does this church undergo all of the work and the effort and the expense and all the rest of it is to say it's a prophecy conference. We study upon prophecy because God said things that would take place and you need to be aware of it. So that when you go away from this place, we go out to a church that is incredibly apathetic and indifferent. And we want to go to them and say, This is the church of Laodicea. There is plenty of apostasy in the other churches that he mentions. And here's the problem. Apathy will lead to apostasy. That's the easiest way. Hath God said. That's the same lie from Eden. And it's still being perpetrated in the church by the church today. Father, we pray that you would help us not to be the apathetic. Never never cold never indifferent, never lukewarm, but always awaiting your return. We pray that as we study through your word and as we grow in our understanding of you day by day, that we would realize you're the God who speaks. You have always spoken. You are speaking today. Every single day we we come closer to your return. God, may you haste the day, but that we would be ready at any moment to go, but also engaged in the message to this world that is dying in its sin. God, use us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.